Esther chapter 7. We've been studying the book of Esther a number of weeks, and as we begin, I think it's always good to review uh, the lessons we've been taught thus far in our study. Now, we can't review all of the messages and so forth. Uh, uh, you can go back and listen to them on our website if you'd like, but uh, I think review is always good. I think that's probably the school teacher coming out of me, but uh, uh, you know, in, in our introduction, we talked about the amazing providences of God and how the providence of God is really the hand of God in the glove of history. In Esther chapter 1, we talked about alcohol and anger, uh, two things that can cause a real problem uh, in, in, uh, in our world today, and we see it played out in many lives. We see in, in Esther chapter 2 uh, how important it is to be in the will of God because Esther, Mordecai, were out of the will of God. In Esther 3, we talked about hatred and anti-Semitism. In chapter 4, the phrase, for such a time as this, is very uh, pr- predominant there. And uh, you never know what God has for you uh, in, his, in your life. And you may be uh, just at the right time, in the right place, uh, to be a blessing to someone. <coughs> and then, uh, chapter 5, we talked about the scepter of God's grace, the king reached out his scepter to Esther, and just as God reaches out his scepter of grace to each one uh, who is uh, uh, dead in their trespasses and sin and offers the grace of salvation. And then last week we talked about some more providences, uh, of evidences of the providence of God, and of course the big issue there is the is pride, and that's the big issue in everyone's life. Pride gets a hold of us, and we do things that we ought not to do, and that don't please God, and certainly wicked Haman had a a problem with pride. Now, our title this morning uh, is Dinner and Death. Now, that doesn't sound very appetizing, does it? I'm sure at one time or another you've had a meal somewhere where you thought that death was going to be the result. But hopefully that doesn't occur very often in your home. Uh, we come to our text this morning, and it reminds me of a cartoon I saw this week where people were sitting in church looking at their mobile devices, and one says to the other, the pastor keeps referring to this morning's text, but which one is it? Well, uh, I don't, uh, I'm not referring to a text you might receive on your cell phone, but uh, the best text message you'll ever read is the Bible. And more specifically, as we come to the text of Esther, uh, chapter 7 here, we have King Ahasuerus and Haman arriving at Esther's banquet. Now, this is the seventh banquet recorded in the book of Esther. Now, neither the king nor Haman knew that Esther was a Jewish. Jewess. Haman was probably still distressed because of the events of the day, but he composed himself and he hoped to enjoy the banquet. Had he known the nationality of the queen, Haman either would have run for his life or fallen on his face and begged the king for mercy. You know, God had warned Haman through circumstances, through his advisors, and even through his wife. But this proud prime minister would not heed the warnings. In Proverbs 16 and verse 5, it says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. 
You know, God's long-suffering led Haman to think he was safe. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because sentence against evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. But yet God's long-suffering today is an opportunity for people to repent. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But you know what? Our sinful world thinks it means God just won't judge sinners at all. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. This is God's word. We can't quarrel with God's word. We may not believe it, but we can't quarrel with it because it's the word from God. Now, as we look here at Esther chapter 7, we notice in verses 1 through 4, the queen's request. Let's read them again. On that day did King as a excuse me, chapter 7. So the king and Haman came to the banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said unto Esther on the second day of the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to, the, to be slain, and to perish. And if we had been sold for bondmen or bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Now, ever since the previous uh, evening's banquet, King Ahasuerus had been waiting to hear the queen's petition. So when the wine was served, he brought up the subject once again. And he had made a generous offer. Now, I don't know if he meant that or not. Uh, we're not really told that, but he does make this offer once again concerning giving her half of the kingdom. Now, during the previous 24 hours, no doubt Esther had practiced her speech many times. And now God gave her strength to deliver it. Remember, she's taking her life into her own hands. And if the king rejected her plea, her life would come to an end. She made it clear from the beginning that she depended upon the favor of the king and wasn't trying to tell him what to do. She also said that her desire wasn't to please herself, but to please the king. I think that was good psychology, even though she didn't have a PhD, she was using some good psychology there. But it was also wise on her part not to say, you know, there's a man in your kingdom who plans to destroy all the Jews. No, she focused her petition on the fact that her life as a queen was in danger and the king had to do something about it. Remember, the king loved the queen, or at least her beauty. And of course, he didn't want to lose her. Not only was the queen's life in danger, but her people's lives were in danger as well. No doubt there was, that was a bit perplexing to the king. Now, just who were her people? Wasn't she a Persian? Well, it's then that Esther reminded the king of the decree that he had approved to wipe out the Jewish nation. In fact, her words were almost verbatim from the decree. 
Ahasuerus was smart enough to put two and two together and understand that Queen Esther was a Jew and she had unwittingly consented, he had unwittingly consented to her murder. She also points out that the king had been paid to issue the decree. Now, if he had sold uh, the Jews as slaves, that would have been just. But to sell them to death, that's something that no one had enough money for. Notice what she says. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Esther, Queen Esther, bravely interceded for her people. And so how would the king respond? In Proverbs 16 and verse 3 and 4, it says, Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. So we have the queen's request. Secondly, we have the king's rage in verses 5 through 8. Let's read them again. And it says there in verse 5, Then King Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make requests for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. King Ahasuerus is startled here. He's amazed. Uh, He doesn't dream that there was any such thing as that which has taken place in his kingdom. He doesn't seem aware of what's going on uh, about putting people to death. Now, if you look at history and you look at the the secular history accounts of of this king uh, at that day, human life was very cheap. The king had lost literally thousands of men in the battle he had against Greece. He threw men about as if they were expendable and it didn't even bother him. So the king wants to know who it was that came up with this thing. Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume in his heart to do such a thing? Isn't it amazing how the wicked world can be so calloused about some evil things and then wonder how people could do other wicked things? You know, the, the world is full of wickedness today. People all around us, unsaved people, are doing things that are sinful and displeasing to God. And yet something happens that uh, is wicked and evil, and they say, oh, how could that happen? This is tragic. We need to do something about this. I'm thinking about, you know, how's our world, especially in this, in this area of the country, people like to drink their alcohol. And yet when someone gets killed on the highway because of a drunken driver, oh, that's terrible, that's terrible. But do they close any of the taverns? No. They keep on drinking. They keep on uh, uh, doing the thing that uh, they, they think is, as a result is, is terrible. The king is wondering about this, and, and right under his nose is Haman sitting there enjoying the banquet with him. 
I wonder how many times we as Christians are kind of the same way. We think something is terrible, and yet we still let a little sin continue on in our life. And it's not just a little sin because there are no little sins with God. And the sin that we have, we think is so little and so insignificant, builds up and becomes a bigger sin, becomes a bigger problem in our lives. And we're out of the will of God because we're not focused on God. Well, Haman's the prime minister here, and he had the confidence of the king. And yet here he is sitting right next to the king, and he's the one that caused all this problem. And so Ahasuerus Ask who the man is, and Esther reveals her bravery to the fullest. She's putting her life on the line. Haman himself had not realized the extent of the decree uh, uh, that he had obtained against the Jews. He knew it included Mordecai. That's all he was concerned about. He didn't realize it also included Queen Esther. Surprise, surprise. And how many times do we think that, you know, uh, well... We're going to do this, but and it's going to we're going to get back with somebody, and then we end up getting back with with more than what uh, uh, we wanted to. This banquet is an evening of surprises. King Ahasuerus has already received one surprise when he learns the nationality of his queen, and now he's going to be hit with another surprise. His favorite officer was an adversary, an enemy who had plotted the whole thing. Again, I believe God's providence is quite evident. God had directed Esther to delay her pleas. God had wanted to give Ahasuerus the opportunity to learn what Mordecai had done. That Mordecai was a Jew and he deserved to be honored. And if a Jew had saved the king's life, why should the king exterminate all the Jews? Now we see here in verse 7, once again, the king... uh, is arising from the banquet in his wrath. Now, we already have been uh, looked at the fact that King Ahasuerus was a man of a short, with a short temper. But on this occasion, his anger must have been great. His pride was hurt because he had misjudged the character of Haman. He had made a fool of himself by promoting Haman and giving him so much influence. And the king also erred in approving the decree without first weighing the facts. Proverbs 18 and verse 13 says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth, it is folly and a shame unto him. And as a result, he had endangered the lives of two very special people, Mordecai, who had saved his life, and Esther, his queen. Now, verse 8 tells us that he went into the palace garden, and maybe he went there and he paced back and forth, and uh, we're not really told what he did there in the garden, but he went there and he probably was, was just trying to cool down a little bit. His anger was so great. And we're told in Proverbs sixteen fourteen, the wrath of a king is as messengers of death. Proverbs 19 and verse 12, the king's wrath is as a roaring lion. So no wonder Haman is afraid. He has been near, he has been near enough to the king to recognize and interpret his mood, and he knew the king was about to become a judge and jury and pass a sentence from which there would be no escape. And so as we go on in verse 8, we see that Haman has only one remote possibility, and that's to beg the mercy of the queen. Now, I think we need to understand what is meant here by Haman was fallen upon the bed. We must understand how they ate at banquets in those days. This was not a bed which she slept on, but it was a reclining couch, which was the custom for them to use 
as they ate. And so we find Haman pleading with Esther for his life. This is a great paradox here. Haman had been furious because of a Jewish man wouldn't bow down to him. And now Haman was prostrate before a Jewish woman begging for his life. And so when the king enters into this room and he sees this, this scene, he accuses Haman of trying to molest the queen. And in his anger, the king uh, would have exaggerated anything that Haman did. And besides that, molesting the queen was a capital crime anyway. Forget about the conspiracy. Everybody could see for themselves that Haman was guilty of attacking the queen. And for that crime alone, he deserved to die. And here's another interesting paradox. And that was when escorting Mordecai around the city to honor him, Haman had covered his head in humiliation. Now the king's guards cover Haman's face in preparation for his execution, which was a Persian custom. Had Haman covered his head in true humility and repentance, I think things would have been different. But he refused to listen to the warnings of the Lord. He was so controlled by his pride and his malice that he was blind to the dangers that laid ahead. Oh, how pride and malice can blind us from the dangers around us. And as we mentioned in our last message, dealing properly with pride is the greatest need of man and each one of us. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5 and 6 says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. God resisteth the proud, giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That brings us to Haman's reward. Haman's reward here in verses 9 and 10. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who hath spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. And then the king said, Hang him thereon. In Proverbs 18 or 11, verse 8, it says, The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. Now, the noticeable gallows that Haman had constructed for Mordecai was, was convenient for the execution of Haman. And therefore, the king used it. Apparently, Haman had let it be known in the palace that he planned to kill Mordecai, for the king's servant knew the purpose of the gallows. And in his pride, Haman had boasted too much. His words came back not only to haunt him, but also to help slay him. Now, the day before, Haman had led Mordecai through the streets dressed in the royal splendor. But now Haman was led through the streets with a covering over his face and the gallows at the end of that journey. Certainly, Haman's wife, Zeresh, and their ten sons witnessed this execution, as did many of the Jews in the city. It must have given courage to the Jews to know that their enemy, Haman, was no longer on the scene. But what are we to learn from this? This is not just a, uh, about a, a fancy dinner and then a horrible death, on the, uh, to be, uh, uh, someone to be hanged on the gallows. What are we to learn? Well, I think Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 
gives us the lesson of this chapter. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Haman had sowed anger against Mordecai, and he reaped anger from the king. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai and the Jews, and the king ended up killing him. In Job 4, and verse 8, it says, Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Proverbs 22, and verse 8, He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity, and the rod of his anger shall fail. This is an unchanging principle in God's word. We think about the, the laws that were made by the Persians, the laws of the Medes and the Persians, that it could not be changed. Here's another unchangeable law in God's word. It's the law of sowing and reaping. And it's illustrated throughout the Bible. We find that it applies both to believers and unbelievers. We find that Jacob killed an animal. He lied to his father, pretended to be Esau, and years later, Jacob's sons kill an animal. They lie to him and pretend that Joseph was dead, sowing and reaping. Pharaoh gave orders to drown the Jewish baby boys, and one day his army was drowned in the Red Sea as they followed and pursued the children of Israel. Ahab was told by Elijah the prophet that right where the dogs had licked the blood of Naboth, whom he had so brutally and cruelly murdered, there the dogs would lick his blood. And when he was mortally wounded in battle and after his death, the Bible tells us that someone washed his chariot and his armor in the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, sowing and reaping. David secretly took his neighbor's wife and committed adultery. And David's own son, Absalom, took his father's concubines and openly committed adultery with them. David killed Bathsheba's husband, and three of David's own sons were slain. Absalom, Amnon, and Adonijah, sowing and reaping. Saul of Tarsus encouraged the stoning of of, uh, Stephen. And when he became Paul, the missionary, he was stoned at Lystra. You see, this is the inflexible law of God. It operates today as it has always operated. It operates in any field. Whatsoever a man sows, he'll reap. You sow corn, you're going to reap corn. You sow uh, sow soybeans, you're going to reap soybeans. This man Haman is experiencing the same thing. He learned it the hard way. Here's a man who went to dinner and ended up in death. His own death by hanging. Do you know, let's keep in mind that this law of sowing and reaping also applies to doing what is good and right. If we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. But if we sow to the spirit, we're going to reap life everlasting. No good deed done and for the glory of Jesus Christ will ever be forgotten before God. No loving work spoken in Jesus' name will ever be wasted. And if we don't see the harvest in this life, we'll see it when we stand before the Lord. Haman was hanged on his own gallows and his body taken down and buried. And all of Haman's wealth and glory couldn't rescue him from death, nor could he uh, take uh, take any of it with him. 
Psalm 49 verse 6 says, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever. In verses 16 and 17 of that same psalm, it says, Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says, For as much as we know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now I think there's not only this personal lesson here, of sowing and reaping, but I think there's a lesson here about the nation of Israel. It's a, na- it's a lesson that our nation needs to be aware of as well. Genesis 12, 3, it says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That's God's promise, and he's always kept it. God takes his promises seriously, even if nations of the world ignore them and challenge them. This doesn't mean that God necessarily approves everything that Israel has done or will do. But it does mean that God doesn't approve of those who try to destroy his chosen people. Now, whether it's Pharaoh in Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Haman in Persia, Hitler in Germany, the leader of Iran or of ISIS in the Middle East, The enemy of the Jews is the enemy of Almighty God and will not succeed. Psalm 37, 35 and 36 says, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Isaiah 54, 17, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment shall thou, uh, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Listen, you and I stand before God as sinners. We deserve exactly the same thing that Haman got. You may say, well, I never committed a crime like that. Who said you did? But you just happen to have the same kind of human nature that Haman had, which was in rebellion against God. That's opposed to God. And in that state, while you're dead in your trespasses and sins, Christ died for you, took your place on the cross, and he died in your stead. And we need to thank God for that this morning. Thank God for the old rugged cross. Now verse 10 here says, So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. That word pacified there is used in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1 to describe the receding waters of the flood. The king's anger had been great had reached its peak when he executed Haman. Now it subsided and the king was himself again. And though the adversary was out of the way, the problem was not completely solved. For the king's decree was still in effect and could not be changed. 
You know, it was now the third month. There were nine months to go. Remember, there was a whole year that was uh, to be, this decree was to be uh, fulfilled. Nine months to go before that fateful day when the Jews would be legally killed. How could Esther and Mordecai solve this problem? Well, you know what? They couldn't. But God could. And we'll find out more about that next week. So stay tuned in the same station, same place, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for...